The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, alien futures traders show up and offer to buy 10 years of humanity's collective future in exchange for putting 2020 back to normal, but are driven off by a party of mimosa-fueled leathery golfers wielding nine irons. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Will McCarthy, author of The Collapsium. This is a great science fiction novel filled with really good, hard science fiction ideas having to do with modern physics and the transformation of matter. We get these controlled mini black holes. We get programmable matter. And best of all, Will gives us a a great sort of adventurous rollick across the solar system as a brilliant engineer tries to keep a ring of black holes from collapsing into the sun and ending humanity forever. So that very interesting discussion about the Collapsium with Will McCarthy is coming up. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, the April mass markets and trade paperbacks are here. Springing forth and combating allergies by providing at least a wonderful distraction with great science fiction are Starborn and Godsons by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. We have met the aliens, and they are us. Avalon was finally thriving. The cold sleep colonists from Earth have settled on a verdant, livable world. The fast and cunning predators humans called Grendels were under control, and mainland outposts had been established. Humans would survive. But unbeknownst to the planet-bound humans, something was moving out there in the stars. Its destination, Avalon. Its probable origin, Earth's solar system. They may be something like human, but the passengers it carried would change Avalon forever. The long-awaited conclusion of the Heret series from science fiction legends Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Also out is The Collapsium by Will McCarthy. This book has existed in print before, by the way, but we are bringing it back along with new books from Will because it's just that good and that wonder-inducing and that cool. When a ruthless saboteur attacks a device capable of probing the farthest reaches of space-time, two rival scientists must combine their prodigious intellects to prevent the destruction of the solar system and every living thing within it. And out now is Overruled, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Lawyers, ray guns, and money. Whatever the future may hold, one thing is certain. Whenever two people get together, the possibility for disagreement will always be present. And when there are conflicts that need settling, lawyers won't be far behind. Here, then, a collection of science fiction tales of men and women who try to balance the scales of justice on a cosmic level. Classics by Robert A. Heinlein, Larry Niven, Clifford D. Simic, Robert Silverberg, and more. And newer stories by Christopher Rocchio, Tony Daniel, yours truly, Sarah A. Hoyt, and Laura Montgomery. Alex Schwartzman and Alvaro Zeno-Samaro and lots of other stellar talents bringing down the judge's gavel with a verdict of excellent entertainment. Overruled, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio, The Collapsium by Will McCarthy, and Starboard and Godsons by Larry Niven, the great Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes are now at booksellers everywhere. What a welcome. Will McCarthy, back to the podcast. Hey, Will. Hey, Tony. How are you? I'm fine in this day of uncertainty, this day and age of uncertainty in which we live. Um, engineer, novelist, journalist, entrepreneur, Will McCarthy is a former contributing editor for Wired Magazine, a science columnist for the Sci-Fi Channel, formerly um, where his popular lab notes column ran for many years. 
He has published nonfiction in many magazines, including Wired, Discover, GQ, Popular Mechanics, lots of others. He's been nominated for the Nebula and Locus and Philip K. Dick Awards because he also writes fiction. His short fiction has graced the pages of magazines like Analog, Asimov's Wired, SFH, and his novels include Lost in Transmission, The Wellstone, To Crush the Moon. These are all going to be Bane titles or already are, as well as um, most recently Antediluvian and upcoming, just turned in, great book, um, Rich Man's Sky, previously a flight controller, I think in the long ago before time, um, and later an engineering manager for uh, a robotics company and founder of Raven Bricks, uh, which sounds like a uh, venture capitalist fund or something like that, Will. Uh, you can maybe enlighten us on that at some point. Uh, Will currently writes patent law and holds 29 U.S. patents uh, and that are in nanostructured optical materials and in lots of other patents as well. Um, apparently in many countries. Um, so uh, briefly, what is Ravenbrick? It sounds really like a, a Will McCarthy science fiction term. <laughs> that that uh, uh, whole endeavor had a, a very long and complicated history. It started out... Uh, under the name the Programmable Matter Corporation. Um, we were experimenting with programmable materials, but then it turned out that the um, uh, most uh, uh, lucrative applications for that were in building materials. So we rebranded as a building materials company called Raven Brick and um, then uh, proceeded to develop smart window and smart wall technology. Um, basically, uh, the, the centerpiece of it was a, a window film that tints when it gets hot. And we had various versions. We had a version that simply turned dark when it got hot. We had a version that turned white. And we had a version that turned into a mirror. Um, but uh, uh, the uh, building materials market is very cost sensitive and very appearance sensitive and uh, uh, the application is also very demanding. Uh, windows and walls are exposed to, you know, large swings in temperature and, uh, you know, sunlight and things like that. So uh, the conservatism of the building industry uh, made it quite difficult to uh, penetrate with a high-tech product like that. and. So the uh, the project chugged along for about ten years until finally the the plug got pulled uh, in sort of an ignominious end, as often happens with with technology startups. Well, it sounds like you were years ahead of your time then. Yeah, I mean that's certainly a problem. Being ahead of your time is is uh, you know just as bad as being wrong <laughs> in a lot of ways, but. Uh, you know, the technology did work and, you know, it was uh, it was neat to look at. Anyway, right now, out now, booksellers everywhere is The Collapsium, which is a novel in the um, the series that includes the books like Lost in Transmission, To Crush the Moon and the Wellstone. This is the Queendom of Saul series, um, which is easily readable as a standalone novel as well. Um, can you sort of set the, the larger... Uh, series scene will um, maybe just a pricey of where we are the, the basic idea behind the series i wanted something that was kind of a hard science fiction fairy tale uh, i wanted it to have the the structure and the resonance of a fairy tale uh, but have a a solid grounding in hard science and so i needed technologies that uh sort of took the place of magic um, so there's a, a uh, material called collapsium, which the book is named after, which is made out of stable arrangements of uh, microscopic black holes. And um, these are used for faster than light communication and teleportation and other, uh, you know, kind of magical applications like that. And the other technology is called wellstone, which is a form of programmable matter that uh, can be electrically tuned to mimic uh, 
other materials, whether whether natural or unnatural. Um, and these two technologies kind of underpin the entire civilization, which is the the Queendom of Saul. And that's kind of the background that the that the story takes place in. Um, and uh, you know, we kind of tell tell stories within that framework. I that's that's where we're at. So we're in a sort of a, we're in a future, but it's in the solar system, and it's um, and there's this it's super science, but it's not like a Van Vogt necessarily super science where we don't really I mean we know what's going on, and you've come up with a very good explanation uh, background for for the science. You know, uh, I was accused of being perhaps overly pedantic in my descriptions of the technology. So there were several uh, long passages explaining how the technology works that I eventually moved to the appendix uh, so that it wasn't slowing the story down. Uh, but I didn't want to throw them out altogether because I think one of the things that people enjoy about my writing is this idea that all the things that are in there could actually happen one way or another. Absolutely. I mean, the whole, it, it really, um, it, the one thing it, you know, fantasy works upon us through sort of interiorization of things that are outside of us. This feels like science fiction to me because it creates this sense of wonder, this aha moment. Um, that's, uh, it, it doesn't feel like fantasy so much to me, but it does, it is a novel of manners. Um, I think it's, it's accurate. Um, the the idea that I was going for was simply a, a society where everyone is very polite. Uh, and when people are being polite all the time, uh, but they uh, are, if, if there are conflicts between people, but the people are constrained socially to behave with extreme uh, politeness, then that produces an effect which at least I find humorous. Um, and uh, so that was... I, I really kind of strove for that in the uh, in the setting of the of the novel and in in crafting the characters. Um, just this idea that I mean, let me back up. The reason that there is a queendom of Saul, the whole um, kind of point behind all of that, was a realization on my part um, that people actually don't enjoy their freedom. You know, people work hard to get freedom, but once they have it, they don't really enjoy it that much. What they really like is to have somebody above them that they can blame their problems on. And so, and I think this is part of the reason for, for fairy tales. We like this idea of, of kings and queens and princes and, and princesses and things like that. Um, so the the idea that we would have you know, a monarchy uh, that was based not on what people say they want, but on rather a uh, kind of a carefully calculated uh, structure of what people actually need deep down inside. And so that's how the, the uh, civilization is kind of architected down to its very roots. And the politeness is part of that. Um, that you know it's kind of a a uh, perhaps a a fantasy in that in that regard to think that people would always be polite to each other um but this idea at least uh is kind of where where the story got going well there's some some killing and some really horrible uh treatment of characters with all the politeness in the collapsium as well. well yes there's a villain who's trying to collapse the sun uh and and a hero who's trying to stop him from doing that and so it winds up being you know it's a it's a, a scientific mystery and it's a murder mystery and it's a uh you know a tale of action and uh and a comedy of manners and it's a lot of different things going on all at the same time um so yeah there's a lot going on in there yeah, I mean it, it's a. I think it's a wonderfully complex and uh, and 
has a many multifaceted book. Um, also, there's a couple other names that that rose up in when I was reading um, is Cordwainer Smith and Stanislaw Lim. As um, it has a limb like fit. If you ever read the Siberiad, which I'm probably sure you have. Um, yes, I have. I, I, it had that feel to it as well because these both uh, these characters both have that sort of power to uh, just shape matter um, with with these uh, far futuristic abilities collapse collapsium and and uh, the the ring collapsitor and the uh, wellstone especially what is wellstone again so wellstone um, uh, the the genesis of that is the same as the genesis of, of my my startup the, the programmable matter corporation this idea that um, there are very small structures uh, called quantum dots, which are, um, you know, very small uh, confinement spaces for electrons. And, you know, electrons will be trapped in like a transistor, for example. Um, there are various electronic structures that, that uh, you know, will corral electrons in various ways and push them around in various ways. But as you get smaller and smaller, the behavior of the electrons starts to change and they be they behave less like uh, particles moving through a, a wire or what have you, and they start to behave more like waves. And if you confine them in three dimensions, they uh, form standing waves uh, that you know don't uh, don't go anywhere. And this actually mimics the structure that electrons take uh, in atoms. And so. Another name for quantum dots is artificial atoms because they have this ability to form complicated electron shells that uh, behave in very interesting ways. So Wellstone is a uh, uh, macroscopic block of material that's got sort of insanely complicated uh, structure down at the at the nanoscale that. Uh, allows for very precise control over these electron structures. Uh, so it's able to mimic the properties of different materials. And, you know, some of these are ordinary materials like iron or glass or gold uh, or wood. Um, but in other cases, uh, you know, there are uh, imaginary or hypothetical materials with names like impervium, uh, that uh, you know have properties that can't be produced using normal matter, and those also play an important role in the story. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the story and the characters. Um, f first, uh, let's talk about Bruno de Tawaji, our uh, our hero, um, who who basically invented the uh, a wellstone net, right? Something. Explain that. Perhaps he's super rich. He is super rich. Yes, uh, he didn't invent Wellstone. Wellstone predates him, but he invented Collapsium, and so sort of the uh, the underpinnings of what became the Queendom of Saul were uh, kind of his creation. Um, and you know, you're when you talk about Cord Rainer Smith or uh, uh, Stanislaw Lem, um, you know, that's an accurate. Uh, uh, those those are some of the inspirations for the story. I wanted a real old-fashioned science hero. Uh, you know, again, if you have uh, science standing in for magic in a in a fairy tale, you have to have someone who can stand in for a wizard, uh, someone who has a lot of ability to you know manipulate the uh, the laws of of uh, matter and energy, and so that's Bruno. Um, he's, you know, kind of a, a golden age sort of sort of science hero, um, and uh, he's a former uh, uh, lover of the of the Queen of Saul, uh, and he has the title Philander, which is a kind of a formal consort uh, designation, um, and that that is very important for the story as well kind of the, the enduring relationship between those two sort of on again, off again relationship. Because they were, they were lovers and 
he was sort of her official lover for a while, or he is, even if they aren't. Right, right. Uh, it's it's complicated um, for for reasons that don't summarize well. One of the problems with science fiction, and it comes out in in uh, um, you know conversations like this, a lot of times the things that are most interesting about a book don't summarize well. Uh, if you reduce it to a to a bullet point, it it doesn't sound nearly as compelling as it does when it's as long as a as a novel. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to tip my hand too much there, but uh, yeah. yeah, that that relationship between the two of them is very important, and she's constrained as the queen of of the solar system. She's very constrained, and this is you know again a very polite society with a lot of rules in place. So there are limits on what she can and can't do, and there are limits on what he can and can't do. And this, in the past, uh, had a powerful effect on the the kind of relationship that they were able to have. Uh, and then that has sort of lingering effects into the far future. Well, I mean, and it's 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 also the she's surrounded by cameras. It's celebrity culture taken to the max max, um, like. Uh, Julia Roberts in that movie with uh, with Hugh Grant, where uh, like he must realize the uh, the intensity and insanity of her world. Bruno's just kind of uh, he's an inventor. <laughs> he's not a, a guy that deals well with with that, right? Sure, he's an inventor. He's a he's a researcher. He's a curmudgeon, uh, and so that kind of constant scrutiny. Um, didn't agree with him. And again, this is in the past. This isn't in the forefront of the novel. Right. It's this, we're not giving anything away uh, in the story. Yeah. Um, but the reason he didn't stay, the reason he didn't stick around is not because they weren't in love. They were. Uh, but the world that she had to live in and the world that he wanted to live in were not the same. Well, talk about the world where he does live. He's, he's built his own, yes. At the, when, when the story starts, um, he's on a miniature planet that he's built himself out at the far fringes of the solar system where he can experiment with black holes uh, and different arrangements of, of collapsium without uh, endangering anyone else. Um, and this, of course, puts him completely remote from human civilization, which in a lot of ways suits him fine, but in other ways does not. Uh, and when there's a problem down in civilization, um, they have to come up and, and fetch him uh, to uh, kind of consult on the, on the quite catastrophic issues that are unfolding. And that's, that's how the story starts. Just briefly talk about this planet he lives on, because it's, it's so cool. It, um... It it reminds me of like the little prince's uh, star that he lives on or asteroid. Sure, sure, and that you know I think we all read that as as children, and you know those of us who weren't influenced by it just weren't even paying attention. I think um, the uh, w one of the other underlying technologies in the Queendom of Saul is um, neutron star matter that has been. Uh, stabilized and compressed in these diamond shells. Uh, and this object is called a nubal, and it's a very sort of ordinary object um, in the Queen of Saul. And if you gather enough nubals in one place and cover them with some dirt, uh, then you have a miniature planet. Um, now, in order to stabilize the atmosphere, you have to do a lot of other things uh, because the escape velocity of a small planet is... Uh, a lot less than the escape velocity of a large planet with the same surface gravity. So if you don't do anything special, the atmosphere will will fly off into space. But um, that's not important to the story. It's not something that I dwelled on until uh, other other books in the series pay more attention to that issue. But uh, yeah, so you have you have a small planet that that uh, you know it's a short walk to uh, to circle the globe. Uh, and you know this is this is the uh setting that that Bruno has chosen for his uh his reclusive experiments and this is where they find him when uh 
when it's time for him to come help save the solar system. So what is the problem that, that they bring to Bruno? Yeah, the uh, uh, when you have a, a civilization the size of the inner solar system, or you know, all the way out to to Saturn and Jupiter, um, the speed of light starts to become a real inconvenience, and um, so people are looking constantly for shortcuts that they can use to uh, shorten transmission times. And so, in this, uh, on that basis. Uh, a group of engineers have put a ring of collapsium around the sun with the idea that it can form a faster than light shunt um, inside the orbit of Mercury that if a signal hits one side of it, it then emerges instantaneously on the other side of it. And so then instead of the sun being a barrier in place, you know, if you're trying to transmit radio signals and the sun is in the way, that's inconvenient. But if instead you have something that bypasses completely around the sun, faster than the speed of light, then that's an advantage. So the ring collapsitor is something that was not designed by Bruno, was not built by Bruno, has been built uh, in Bruno's absence while he's off in the outer reaches of the, of the solar system. But unfortunately, there's a problem. Uh, the uh, uh, ring collapsitor is not behaving the way it's supposed to, and it's falling into the sun and will destroy everything. That's the problem that needs to be solved. How is it going to destroy the, uh, the sun and, and the solar system? What's the, it, it's a black, it's a big ring of little stabilized black holes, right? It's correct. Yeah. And even one, even, even one black hole falling into the sun, uh, would be a, uh, not a good thing. sort of, it would spell the doom, the eventual doom of the sun. But, you know, if you have a, a large plurality of black holes all falling into the sun from different directions, um, then that's a real problem and, you know, will cause the sun to catastrophically fail. Um, and, of course, all life in the solar system depends on the sun and also depends on the sun not going nova and various things like that. So. This falls into sort of a uh, uh, high urgency, high high uh, impact category of, of problems. Who came up with this incredibly dangerous idea of making a ring collapsitor? Well, that would be Marlon Sykes, who uh, is um, sort of uh, Bruno's nemesis for a variety of different reasons. And again, the two of them are very polite to each other, but they have different ideas about the sorts of things that should be done and how they should be done. Um, both of them have this title, Philander. Both of them have had uh, uh, formalized romantic relationships with the queen, and that also makes them rivals. And so uh, uh, Marlon, while Bruno was away, has been enjoying his time in the, uh, in the limelight and, um, you know, creating this, this, structure so he can get rich and famous and uh it's not quite working out that way he's really jealous of bruno and he has he's incredibly rich but he's not as rich as bruno <laughs> and, he, and he resents that yeah yeah i mean um he sees himself, I don't think that Bruno particularly feels that rivalry. I don't think he minds if someone else has fame and fortune and, you know, all the trappings that go with it. Um, but to someone like Marlon, uh, having somebody richer than you, having somebody smarter than you, um, having somebody that, you know, the Queen still loves Bruno. Uh, they didn't break up because they didn't love each other. But in the case of, um, uh, Marlon and Tamara, um, you know, she broke up with him. And so that's kind of yet another way that that uh, he feels that that Bruno has bested him. And so getting the upper hand in that relationship uh, is not his only motivation, certainly, but it's it's uh, a 
motivation that drives his character and that drives the story forward. So Marlon's ring collapser has started to uh, collapse and they need Bruno fast. How did they get him back fast? He's out in the Kuiper belt. But talk about the facts. That's my question. <laughs> yeah, um, the fax machine is something that has been in uh, other stories of mine. Um, but, uh, you know, a fax machine is something that can uh, disassemble things uh, at the atomic level and reassemble things at the atomic level. It can create perfect copies of objects. Um, and when it's coupled with uh, Collapsium, it creates a teleportation gate. You can simply step into a fax machine and then step out of another fax machine um, somewhere else. And, uh, you know, so it's it's effectively uh, teleportation. But, the, you know, there, there are, as science fiction has explored many times over the years, there are philosophical implications because really what's happening is when you step into a fax machine, you're you're murdered. You're you're whisked apart into component atoms, and then a perfect copy of you is created. Um, and uh, again, sort of the underpinnings of the Queendom of Saul. Um, there was a period of great angst and consternation around this idea of constantly being killed and and recreated. Um, but that's all in the past. By the time the story starts, people have kind of settled into that idea and it's considered perfectly normal. Um, and another thing that's fairly normal is to have multiple copies walking around at the same time. Now there are legal restrictions on that. Uh, there are limits to how many copy hours people are entitled to, uh, to have per month. And those limits get higher depending on how important the person is. Um, but, uh, Anyway, yeah, uh, to get back into the inner solar system is actually a fairly small matter of simply stepping into the fax machine and and rematerializing in the uh, inner solar system. And the transmittal is at the speed of light. It's an electromagnetic thing, or is it quantum teleportation? Or yeah, I mean the the information the the if you're talking about the precise location of every atom in a human body that's a colossal amount of information and so in this case what the uh, uh, there's a network of collapsium structures called the collapsitor network uh, or the uh, the ISCOG intersystem collapsitor grid um, and it's just simply a high very high bandwidth communication network that allows such complicated signals to be transmitted easily and that's you know that's kind of down in the in the wiring of the of the story i don't spend a lot of time you know talking about that but uh yeah but every time somebody sends a fax bruno gets some money right <laughs> yes he does uh and it you know it's another thing that's um it doesn't really drive the story but it's part of the dna of the story that he's got he doesn't just have more money than anyone else. He's got absurdly more money than anyone else um, to the point where even just the sort of minor uh, um, movement of his, of his wealth from one spot to another causes, you know, massive uh, uh, ripples and, and consequences for other people. And for someone who doesn't enjoy the limelight, that's not a great position to be in. Uh, he has to tread very lightly with such tremendous wealth. Uh, and that's another reason why he's kind of retreated from society so that uh, his actions don't have consequences in that way. Yeah, but now he's back in it and back at the center of it. Um, why is the thing collapsing and what's the, I, we wanna take it, I don't wanna give anything away, but take it up to the point of, of what the big problem is that he um, that he needs to solve? Well, yeah. Again, I don't. This is this is treading right into the the uh, the meat of the novel, which you know. Again, we don't want to give too much away, but the uh, basic structure of the novel, like a fairy tale, it's told in three parts, and each of those parts kind of breaks down into 
into threes, um, which, you know, that you see that structure a lot in, in old stories. Um, and the basic idea is that, you know, Bruno is perfectly content to cooperate with Marlon Sykes to collaborate on a solution. Um, Marlon is a lot less happy about that collaboration. Um, but under the circumstances, um, they are at least initially forced to, uh, to work closely together. Although I guess it's not giving away too much to say that that, that collaboration falls apart. Well, the, um, especially in the middle part of the book where, um, we have a murder (laughs) and copies of some of our characters are the murder victims. Um, Maybe talk a little bit, because this is where we really get into this. Where, what is the soul? You know, who's the real person? Um, and, and you have a really complicated chief of police who shows up uh, in Vivian uh, Rajman. Maybe talk about that a bit. I, it, it's not... The book is, is told in such a way where it's not incredibly, uh, you know, it doesn't it's not a thriller hanging on the edge of, of who got killed here. We know who got killed. It was, um, one of them was Sykes, a copy of Sykes, um, Marlon. So, um, tell us a little bit about how that affects him because he's still alive, of course. <laughs> and, uh, Vivian, uh, who has been recast, our, our chief of police, who's been sort of reconstituted from parts in the past. Um, just talk about those, those characters are so cool and so interesting and, and, and wonder-inducing in their own ways. Well, um, I was trying to really sort of uh, uh, mine the, the, uh, the depths of what it means to be able to make copies of people. Um, this whole society is uh, built around this idea of immorbidity because people can step into a fax machine and step out again as sort of not just perfect copies of themselves, but idealized copies of themselves. Um, sickness and aging are gone. Um, uh, people can be killed in the sense that, you know, if they, if they get, uh, you know, hit by a heavy object or, or fall off of something or, or get burned in a fire, I mean, the body can be destroyed, but there are backup copies of everyone uh, and like I said, multiple copies running around. So the idea of murder uh, in this society is something more akin to assault. Uh, you know, if you if you kill somebody, that's not good, but it doesn't actually destroy that person. It doesn't remove that person from the world. Uh, it just removes sort of the most recent block of memories since their last update, or it removes a single copy of several copies that they have running around that day. Um, But in this particular case, there's a carefully orchestrated event that has taken out all of the copies of Marlon Sykes, except one uh, who was just kind of uh, by blind luck, not where he was supposed to be at that moment. Um, And so this, I, I just, I wanted to explore this idea of of what a real murder would look like in a in a society where where death was largely unknown um, and uh, Vivian Rajman, the, the chief of police, the uh, the head of the royal constabulary, um, has the same uh, kind of uh, genesis that uh, the backup copies. There's a you know there are repositories where people's backup copies are stored, um, but her backups were tampered with or, or uh, you know, otherwise not available when, when needed. So she was killed. Uh, her, her only extant copy was, was killed, and they had to revive her from, from partial backups and archived memories and things like that. And so what happened is she's got the body of a child, and she's got kind of the brain of a child, but she's been downloaded with a lifetime full of adult memories um, which causes her to be a very kind of confused and confusing person, but she's phenomenally good at her job. Um, 
everyone in the kingdom of Saul is very good at their jobs uh, because it's a society of immortal people. It's also a meritocracy. And so the people that kind of drift to the top, uh, you know, in a, in a civilization of many, many billions of people, someone who gets to be the head of the royal constabulary is going to be the person who's absolutely the best for that job, period. And the fact that this awful thing has happened to her uh, doesn't get in the way of her being phenomenally good at her job. So when it comes time to investigate the murder, uh, she has to uh, kind of show up and do her thing, even though as a as a little girl, she's not too happy about having to. Well, it's a cool dichotomy, and she and Bruno, and Bruno's able to help her a little bit that, with that as well. Um, he, he's sort of a, a man-child in his way, um, with all of his success. Yeah, I and, think that, uh, uh, that Bruno and Vivian relate yeah. to each other in a way that, uh, uh, you know, they have a, a, a relationship that, that none of the other characters have in that sort of, uh, you know, childlike way. Yeah. And uh, finally, uh, the third part of the book, Bruno um, meets a copy of a version of himself that it's really it's it's like the best version of yourself meets the worst version, <laughs> the most twisted version of yourself. Um, I, I, of course, we can't talk too much about it, but talk a little bit about Muddy <laughs> and, because it's. It's coming up as you're reading the book, and it's it's a cool thing to look forward to. Yeah, well, Muddy is, as you say, um, you know, Bruno, like everyone in the Queen of Saul, Bruno is an idealized version of himself. Uh, he's kind of the best that he can be in a in a society of people who are the best that they can be. Um, but uh, because it's possible uh, to make copies of people, it's also possible to make illicit copies of people, uh, highly illegal, of course, but it's, but it's possible to do that. And once you've made an illicit copy, you can do horrible things to that illicit copy. And, uh, you know, the, the psychological consequences of that are, are devastating. And so if you uh, have a, a person kind of meeting this, this, uh, abused and broken version of themselves, uh, it's, you know, it's difficult to come to terms with, I think, uh, how low it's possible to sink if things aren't going your way. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, Bruno and Muddy share all their memories. They're, they're different aspects of the same person. So they also have kind of a unique relationship uh, they uh, they get each other, even if they don't necessarily like each other or approve of each other. Uh, they also have to cooperate in order to uh, uh, keep disaster at bay. Uh, and that uh, that cooperation between the idealized self and the sort of the pessimal self um, is another thing that's both kind of thematically important in terms of the the tone and the kind of underlying idea of the book, but also in terms of driving the plot forward in that third part. And all of this revolves around the fact that that dang ring collapsed is, um, is, uh, is a, is going to end all this fun that humanity has been having. Um, maybe one other thing that's interesting is this gateway to the, to the end of time that Bruno's been. What the hell is that? That was very fascinating to me. Well, the, the basic idea, Bruno, uh, you know, he lives in the real world at times, but he's, he's a theoretician, among other things. And this uh, question people are always asking, you know, how does things end? How does the universe end? Uh, is it a big crunch? Is it a big rip? Uh, does it all just fade away? Does it kind of exist forever and just get more and more spread out and and cold and, and dark. Um, and, you know, Bruno, rather than theorizing about this uh, eventuality, has decided to simply, uh, in his words, open up a window and look. So he's trying to create a structure called an arctifin, which is made out of miniature black holes. And 
is a, a, a doorway or a window to look forward to the fourth dimensional extremum of space-time, i.e. the end of time, um, and uh, see what it looks like. So this is his project. This is what's his latest thing that's, that's consuming him at the time that the, the story starts. Um, and while it doesn't play a large role uh, in most of the story, it sort of is the anchor at the beginning and end of the story that um, uh, kind of brings the whole thing to closure. So uh, what, what else do we want to say about the book? I think we've covered a bunch. Well, I think something that hasn't maybe come across as clearly as, as uh, I, should, should, I should have been more clear, this is what I call a kitchen sink novel. Um, some novels are sort of very tightly plotted and tightly scripted and, you know, you have a clear idea of, um, you know, what's happening when and people march from one spot to another spot, uh, you know, telling this, this very particular and, and narrow story. Uh, and The Collapsium is not a book like that. Um, the Collapsium is something that, you know, I took 10 years worth of kind of random ideas and shoveled them in to this uh, kind of utopian society. Uh, I thought about, well, what kind of society would I like to live in? What would, what would my utopia actually look like? What would a real utopia look like? Um, and so I came up with, you know, all of these very different, um, science ideas and created a fairy tale world. Um, and, um, you know, I think it works. I think it's gotten really good reviews and, and done really well. Um, but honestly, at the time that I was writing it, I felt like it might very well end my career because it was such a, such a self-indulgent, uh, uh, work, but uh, I think sometimes you have to do that. I think sometimes you have to just kind of connect to your own sort of wish fulfillment and, you know, write the sort of story that you've always dreamed of reading. Uh, so that, to me, that's that's what the Collapsium is. Well, it's super cool. Uh, and what are you, uh, what are you working on lately? Well, as you mentioned uh, earlier, I have just handed in uh, Rich Man's Sky, which I think is my 14th book. Um, and uh, I am uh, in the process of plotting out a sequel to that, uh, which I'm hoping to get started on sometime in the next few weeks. I think like everyone in the world, uh, I've been a little bit thrown by the pandemic. That's um, while it's certainly given a lot of people a lot of free time, it's also disrupted our uh, our peace of mind. Uh, and so uh, it may be a little bit more difficult to get stuff done at this exact moment, but that's, that's the direction I'm trying to drag myself <laughs> at the moment. Onward and upward with the arts. Uh, through it all, I hope. <laughs> so we all have jobs. The, uh, the book is called The Collapsium, and it is at booksellers everywhere, um, including online, of course. And, uh, Will, thank you so much for, for talking with us about it. Thank you, and uh, stay safe. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few. No war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. 
And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Office of Frontier Security HQ, Interior Department Tower, City of Old Chicago, Sol System, Solarian League. Yes, Marianne? Ado Uktomskoy tried not to sound impatient as Marianne Havico's image appeared in a window in the notes he'd been reviewing before his scheduled meeting with Nathan McCartney, the permanent senior undersecretary of the interior. Havico had been his secretary for a long, long time, and he knew she wouldn't have interrupted him on a whim. At the same time, she knew his schedule better than anyone else in the universe, including him. That meant she knew how important his review and preparation for this meeting was. As the CEO of Frontier Security Intelligence Branch, Uktomskoy was McCartney's senior spook, and as the confrontation with the Star Empire of Manticore and its allies went further and further into the crapper, his meetings with his superior had become less than pleasant affairs. The permanent senior undersecretary had always had a tendency to take out his frustrations on his subordinates. He was also a micromanager, the sort who demanded detailed reports. Worse, he knew what he wanted and expected to hear before the reports were ever written. He could be counted upon to break the kneecaps of any subordinate who gave him the wrong details, but was equally vindictive with people who told him what he expected to hear and were wrong about it. That made working for him challenging at the best of times, and with so many wheels coming off in the fringe and verge, there was no way to get reports right, no matter how hard someone tried. I'm very sorry to disturb you, sir, Haviko said, and he realized she wasn't speaking into her hush phone. I'm afraid Mr. Nias is here. I told him you're reviewing for an important meeting, but he insists on speaking to you. He must really have pissed Marianne off for her to be making certain he can hear her. That was Uktomskoy's first thought. The second was, and he'd better have a damn good reason for pissing her off, too. The bastard knows I'm in a meeting with McCartney in less than an hour. Did he say what he needs to speak to me about? No, sir, just that it was urgent. I see. Uktomskoy frowned, then he shrugged. If Nius was wasting his time, he was just likely to get his head ripped off this time. But if he wasn't... Send him in, he said. Yes, sir. His office door opened, and Raimund Nius came through it. He was tall, with very fair hair and a dark complexion, and his expression was far from cheerful. I apologize for barging in this way, he said quickly, before Uktomskoy could speak. I wouldn't have, except that I know you're supposed to be talking to McCartney this afternoon. Under the circumstances, I thought I'd better bring this to you immediately. And frankly, it's sensitive enough. I wanted to brief you on it personally. Uktomskoy's eyebrows rose despite himself. As the head of OFS Intelligence Branches Section 2, Nius was responsible for analysis of internal threats to frontier security's operations. He was also deeply in bed with several of the Solarian League's more corrupt transstellars, and in most star nations, that would have been considered a conflict of interests. The Solarian League wasn't most star nations, however. Brief me about what, Uktomskoy said, waving the other man into one of the comfortable chairs in front of his desk. I got a pair of very disturbing reports this morning. Nia sank into the indicated chair. One's about a problem we've been keeping an eye on for some time, but it's not really our responsibility, thank God. In fact, it was copied to me for information from the gendarmerie, not because anyone expects us to take any sort of action about it. According to the gendarme sources, though, all indications are that the Hypatia referendum is going to come out with a clear majority for secession and political association with Beowulf. That's going to have some nasty implications for us, for the entire league down the road, I think. But scary as it is, it's not nearly so worrisome from our perspective as the one I've received from the Maya sector. Uktomskoy frowned. He didn't like the sound of that at all, especially not if Nius thought whatever was happening in Maya was worse than the notion of a member system of the League deciding to follow Beowulf's example, kick the League to the curb, and sign on with the Mantis. True, Hypatia was only modestly prosperous by core world standards, but like its interstellar neighbor Beowulf, it had been a member of the League since the day it was founded. Its defection would have major implications for the League's cohesion, and Nius thought the Maya report was worse? 
the Maya sector had been one of frontier security success stories for well over a T-century. In fact, in most ways, Maya was the crown jewel of the protectorates, a highly prosperous nine-star system sector which had actually petitioned for Solarian protection 150 T years earlier. That was unusual, to say the least, but the Mayans had seen frontier security coming for some time. Recognizing that OFS clienthood was clearly in their future, they'd begun preparing well ahead of time to make clienthood as tolerable as they could. They'd understood they needed bargaining chips, so they'd actively courted investment by Solarian transtellers. But they'd simultaneously put local protections and controls into place, the sort of protections and controls frontier security clients were seldom in a position to hold out for. They'd wanted their investors to make a healthy profit, and they'd been willing to cooperate to make that happen. But they'd also wanted to be sure they retained a powerful voice in how those profits got made. Their object had been to make the sector even more attractive to the League, but in a way which would give them a certain leverage when the moment came. They'd made themselves into a golden goose, with such valuable pre-existing relationships with so many transstellars that no one really wanted to destabilize them. In fact, they'd succeeded in turning the transstellars in question into their champions, ready and able to protect their existing relationships against interlopers when OFS started looking their way. At the same time, they'd made quiet contact with many of the bureaucrats who really ran the Solarian League. They'd understood discreet gifts could buy a lot of friendship, and they'd been careful to get on the career bureaucrats' good side. And then they'd offered OFS a deal. They would accept frontier security protectorate status and an OFS-appointed sector governor, but they would retain local self-government and the appointee would have to be confirmed by a majority of the sector's voters. If he was rejected, OFS could always select another one until a mutually acceptable candidate was reached, but whoever it was would have to be mutually acceptable. They would cough up the usual OFS administrative fees. Their transstellar friends would restrain the slash and burn rapaciousness which had devastated so many fringe economies, and in return, they'd continue to manage their local affairs without infusions of Solarian gendarmes or intervention battalions. The arrangement had worked well for the last T-century and a half, although signs of increasing restiveness had begun to emerge among younger Mayans. For that matter, the Mayan business community was none too pleased by the way OFS had increased its fee schedules steadily for the last 60 or so T years. Maya might not have been bitten as badly as many of the other protectorates, but those administrative fees were taking a steadily bigger chunk of its revenues. Besides, whatever else they might be, Mayans were fringers. They didn't much care for OFS's progressively uglier exploitation of other fringe star systems. Fortunately, Governor Oroville Borregos had proved capable of gentling a rest of mount. He'd barely squeaked through the Mayan assembly when he was first appointed as governor in 1912, probably because of the mounting local unhappiness with OFS's fee demands. But five years later, he'd been reconfirmed for a second term with 68% of the vote. And in 1920, he'd won yet a third term, this time with a 76% majority. In an era in which OFS governors considered themselves popular if no one was actively trying to blow up their air cars, Borregos genuinely was popular. Not only that, he seemed to be in the process of wooing Erewhon and its wormhole back into the Solarian fold from its alliances with first Manticore and then Haven. At a time when the entire galaxy seemed to be catching fire, Maya represented a welcome corner of tranquility, for the moment, at least. What sort of report are we talking about? Uktomskoy asked unhappily. If he had to tell McCartney Borregos' popularity was starting to wane, and the days of Maya's tranquility might be numbered. I have two separate sources who each tell me Borregos has met directly with representatives of Manticore, Nius said flatly. For a moment, Uktomskoy was certain he'd misunderstood. Then he straightened in his chair. What did you say? I said, I have two separate reports that Baregos is meeting with the Mantis. Neil shook his head, blue eyes worried. Separate reports from two different sources, Ado. And neither one of the sources knows about the other. 
Tomsquay's jaw tightened at the implication. I wouldn't have been in such a rush to tell you about it if it was only one report, Nius continued. But when I've got two separate channels confirming each other, I've got to take it seriously. Are you suggesting Orville Barregos is contemplating treason? I don't know what he's contemplating, Nius shot back with an unusual note of frustration. All I know is that I have usually reliable sources telling me he's talking to Mantis. And frankly, it worries me a lot more than it might have otherwise because of all the other reports I've been getting and sharing with you about Manticoran involvement in stirring up the fringe. Uktomskoy glared at him, but Nius looked back steadily. And Uktomskoy was forced to admit he had a point. Almost a year ago, Brigadier Nortoshi Vanola, Uktomskoy's counterpart with gendarmerie, had kicked across a report of what appeared to be orchestrated restiveness across wide stretches of the fringe. Uktomskoy had been inclined to write it off as a case of too much imagination, until Nius had come to him six or seven months ago with a report of his own. One that suggested not only that Vinola's analysts might be onto something, but that the star empire of Manticore might be behind it. To date, any corroborating evidence had been thin, to say the least, and entirely too much of Nius's information came from confidential sources. At Uktomskoy's insistence, he'd sent urgent queries back to his agents in place, demanding IDs on those sources in hopes of gaining some insight into their reliability. Field agents were always reluctant to reveal sources' names to higher authority for a lot of reasons, however, and sheer distance complicated the situation because of the built-in data transmission delays. So far, only a tiny handful of those sources had been positively identified, and the process of evaluating their trustworthiness was only beginning. And would it happen that this time we at least know who those reliable sources are? He asked tartly. As a matter of fact, I do know who one of them is, Neo said. I know both agents, one of them personally, and one only by reputation, pretty well. Kieran McWilkin, the senior agent in our landing office in Sprague, is the one I know personally. I sent her out to keep an eye on things when the Havenites and Mantis started shooting at each other again. One of her stringers on Smoking Frog is a security guard on Borregos' staff in Shuttlespot, and he got this. Nius tapped his Unilink, and a holo of a dark-skinned, strong-jawed face appeared in Uktomskoy's display. He glanced at it, then looked back at Nius. And this is who, exactly? he asked. We're not entirely positive, Nius conceded. Whoever he is, though, He's met very privately with Borregos in his office well after normal hours. That struck me as ominous, given all the recent agitation in the fringe. So I had that. He twitched his head in the direction of the hollow, put through a full facial recognition pass. Uktomskoy arched an eyebrow. Given the sheer staggering quantity of imagery, a full facial recognition pass could take weeks, sometimes months, even at modern data processing speeds. I got a hit, sort of. Nius tapped his Unilink again, and a second holo appeared beside the first one. This one was much poorer quality, although it was obvious it had been digitally enhanced. I'm sorry it's no shopper, he said, but it's only a part of the original imagery. Denuzi who took it was using a concealed camera and trying to get pictures of Baron Highridge. The Manti Prime Minister? Uktomskoy looked up sharply, and Nius nodded. The XPM now, of course, he said. Denuzi was doing an undercover piece on Hyrage's meetings with some of his more camera-shy donors. He shot this outside the Mantis Parliament and just caught the fellow we're interested in in one corner of the frame. A flashing cursor appeared in the image above the head of a tall, broad-shouldered, deep-chested individual. The camera had caught him in three-quarters profile, his head turned as he spoke to a much shorter uniformed man beside him. We're not sure who the shorter guy is, Nius said. Whoever he is, he's wearing a Manti Commodore's uniform, though. And the computers call it a 93% probability that the taller one is the man in McQuilkin's holo of Borregos' midnight visitor. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor, 
by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a couple of Dyson Spheres along with a new fundamental force that squeezes matter to a singularity on command, but unfortunately doesn't affect matter used to produce lust, sloth, and envy among the capital sins. And so is actually useless but mathematically very pretty. Plus, thanks, praise, and plaudits for Will McCarthy, author of The Collapsium. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.